are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Curatorial. Familiar, yet strange. Nicole Murphy is an Australian composer whose works have been described as both sensitive and delicate, as well as strong, compelling, and exhilarating. She has been commissioned by eminent arts organizations, including the Australian Ballet, the Royal Academy of Dance, the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, and Orchestra Victoria. She is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Theodore Front International Orchestral Prize, Iceberg New Music's 2017 Call for Scores, and the Mid-America Freedom Band's 2015 Commissioning Prize. Nicole holds a bachelor and master's degree in composition from the Queensland Conservatorium and has recently completed a PhD at the University of Queensland. Recent commissions include a chamber opera for Experiments in Opera in New York City, a cello and piano piece for the Vox Femina Festival in Israel, and a new work for the Kuringai Philharmonic Orchestra in Sydney, Australia. What we would do is first talk about Untangled, and then we can talk about Stolen, since that's going to be the kind of the bulk of the of the interview. So starting off with Untangled, this piece uh, you wrote in 2011, and just kind of like, Kind of take me back. Who's who's the person that is writing Untangled? Oh, that's a really great question. So I suppose in 2011, I was, I guess I was coming to the end of my master's. Um, and I think the sort of tra- trajectory that I'd followed personally was when I was in my undergrad, I think I wrote very slow, spacious, soft, cautious sort of music. Um, it wasn't very mm-hmm. confident. It was very introspective. And then I took some time off between my undergraduate and when I started my master's program. And I found that the more I was away from institutions, the more I started to come out of my shell, I guess, and be more confident and write the music that I guess I really wanted to hear. Um, And so my music went from being very spacious and understated to having more layers, more, more activity, I suppose. So it still retained that sense of overall harmonic stasis uh, and Mm -hmm. lack of movement. But then within those sort of broad landscapes, there was more surface movement, I guess. Um, So this piece came around around that time, around the end of my master's, um, as that was starting to to move and change a little, I guess. And what does the title mean? Um, The title comes from a quote from a Laurie Moore book, and to be honest, I don't even know which short story it comes from now, but um, I should have looked that up. Um, and That's okay. <laughs> the, the quote um, is quite extensive, but basically it describes this dream that the character has um, where there's a door in this apartment that opens up and all of a sudden there are these rooms that she doesn't know existed and there's this whole house underneath um, and there are birds living inside and it says, describes it as very dark but beautiful Um, And there's sort of this bunched and panicky movement. Um, And then in the end, it says in the dream, it untangled into a fluttering stasis. And so these are the sort of the sort of imagery that I was working with. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Yeah, it's a really beautiful passage of writing. It's yeah. And it was just one of those passages that instantly um, attracted me. I work a lot with um, literature and poetry as a stimulus. And I just thought it was very beautiful. Right, because the other piece we're going to talk about, Stolen, was also inspired by uh, poetry. Yeah. So do you, do you have a writing background yourself? 
No, I mean, I think maybe if I was more eloquent in my, in my use of the English language, maybe I would have been a writer because I do love words. And, you know, when you see something that's, you know, just a single sentence that it's so concise and so elegant and so beautiful and you think, here I am kind of clumsily bumbling my way through the English language for the same number of years as this writer and here they've expressed something so eloquently. Um, right. Yeah, so I, I really appreciate good writing. I wish I was better at it myself. Um, but no, definitely not a background as a writer. Although I've always journaled. That's just always been a habit of mine. So mm -hmm. I guess I've always engaged with text in that regard. And any text that captures my attention, I've always written it down. Um, so the text for Untangled, I had just written in a journal from years and years prior. And then when I was thinking about the piece, I was just going through ideas and found it. And, you know, it had such beautiful imagery that I thought I'd work with it. This is a piece for the Pirou Ensemble plus percussion. And it's a very intimate piece, which I think works actually very well for the ensemble. I mean, I think so often you hear Pirou pieces that are that are almost trying to sound orchestral. And which, which is when you get into the kind of the kind of like, quote, new music sound of the ensemble. I mean, we've all we've all heard those pieces that, oh, that's Perot ensemble, that's new music, that's what it should sound like. But I think yours has a kind of different sound for it. So can you talk about thinking about or working with the ensemble? Yeah, um, I mean, my approach to the ensemble was really to think, and it's the same approach that I have for any pieces, to think about the individual instruments and what are the you know, my favourite colours that I want to hear out of those particular instruments. So what do they do really well? What are the sounds that captivate me? Um, so one of the things for this piece is the blend between the piano and the vibraphone um, mm -hmm. and sort of treating them at times as one instrument and meshing those timbres together um, and then having like the violin harmonics that kind of emerge out of that, um, the sortasto cello that again sort of comes out from underneath and so I think that's sort of my approach is purely from what would fascinate me timbre-wise and then put that into the, the music. Yeah, there, while I was listening to it, I thought, you know, this could almost be like a, uh, a piano and vibraphone duet with, you know, the other four instruments accompanying. They, they play such an important role in the piece. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, they're sort of the central skeleton that everything else kind of hangs around. The piece kind of has a kind of Pasakalia feel due to the repetition. Is there a formal scheme running in the background kind of with regards to harmony? Oh, I mean, this is a, a long time ago. I would need to, need to think about <laughs> it. I mean, I, well, I guess that answers the question in the sense that um, I guess there's not a formal scheme. There most likely wasn't any sense of process in that regard, um, but would have been treated intuitively mm -hmm. okay. and this was about the time as well that I started writing more lyrical music um because I, I mean growing up as a female composer often that's kind of looked down upon in some ways um you know you, you're well you're attempting to kind of avoid being too feminine sometimes um right actually yeah I've I've had conversations with other composers that are women who who kind of almost it's not that they're putting on a front but I definitely feel like 
there is a aggressiveness in their music because they don't want to have that label of being lyrical or or something i don't i don't know so so you were coming out of that out of that point so what what kind of how did you as a as a composer just decide you know well this is just what i want to do well i think it happens gradually over time and you know i say that I mean, I'm looking at it from the perspective of a female because I don't have any other perspective to look at it from. But it could also be a stylistic thing. Like I'm sure my male colleagues would have the same, feel the same stylistic pressures of people judging. You know, particularly when you're in an undergraduate institution, I'm not sure what your right. experience was like, but it can be competitive and judgmental and, um, you know, there's sort of little style laws sometimes. And so I guess... I guess maybe I'm just filtering it through my experience, but perhaps everyone else is feeling the same way about trying to establish their style in that sort of environment. Um, but in terms of how I kind of came to it, I don't remember, I mean, I remember it being a fairly gradual process of trying out little things and then, you know, that would be okay. It would, it would work fine. And so then in the next piece, you'd try and extend that a little bit more or play with the idea or look at it from another angle um, but I do remember one piece that I wrote a year before I wrote this one, an orchestral piece, and it was for quite large forces. And um, it was a part of an emerging composer program. And it was myself and maybe there were four other composers. Um, and we studied a whole lot of repertoire with the orchestra. And it was all, of course, male uh, composers. Yeah, of, it was all the standard of course. repertoire, of course. And um, someone had made a really just offhand remark about about delicate feminine music in relation to one of the, the pieces. And I thought, I remember very consciously thinking, you know what, I'm going to write this big, loud, bombastic, aggressive kind of piece. And I'm going to step well outside my comfort zone and yeah, write this monster of a piece. And I was very defiant about it. Anyway, the piece opens quite... Uh, with these kind of big large gestures but within about 30 seconds it sort of dissolves back into that <laughs> that, that gentle sort of stasis that, right. of my style so the piece is more me than anything else but uh you know that opening statement wasn't i guess so yeah i mean that was a, a more deliberate stand that didn't work out so well i suppose but the rest of it i guess just sort of untangles itself that was a terrible pun that wasn't meant to be there nice um, love it <laughs> yeah i mean it just emerges bit by bit as you become more confident well that and and yeah that i think you just hit it it's con it's confidence and you gain more confidence with age so you know i i mean my own experience is is the exact same thing you know when you're coming up in undergrad you're trying to uh, you're trying to find yourself, but you're also t you you have so much outside pressure. You're trying to make a statement that is still liked by people, and you know, at a after a while, and this is in music, in life, in in just about everything. You just kind of stop caring. Yeah, <laughs> and you're absolutely. like, I'm, I, I I don't really want to waste time with uh, trying to trying to do something that isn't that I don't believe in so yeah absolutely as the energy reserves start to deplete it's you know that just gets yeah. buried to the side I don't have the time or energy to deal with that the ensemble that we're going to hear is Ars Nova Dallas how did you get connected with that ensemble 
Their conductor, Jordan Randall Smith, invited me to write this piece for the Festival of Modern Music that was in Dallas um, in that year. Um, so that's that's how this one came about. And that's who we're hearing, right? On the recording. The Ars Nova Dallas. Yes, that's right. So it's a live recording from that festival.
Can you tell me what the scene is like in Australia? Oh, I get asked this question all the time and I really... Really? I do. I really do. Because a lot of what I do happens outside of Australia. Um, And so it's a a really common question. And I don't know that I have a good answer other (laughs) than... And I I need to formulate a good answer because it's coming up again and again. Um, But I think the scene... I would say I don't see any differences in the scene really anywhere that I am in the sense that wherever you are, you can always find people who are interested in new music, who are passionate about it, who want to collaborate, who are doing it at a high level. Um, And so I think, you know, in whatever location you're in, it's that matter of just seeking out your tribe of people who are into what you do, whose artistic vision sort of resonates with yours, who are trying to say the same thing. So, yeah, I think it's as, as vibrant as elsewhere. Mm-hmm. In terms of funding for the arts, is there anything different going on in Australia than, say, the United States or in, in certain countries in Europe? Yeah, well, most of our funding traditionally has come from government funding. Um, uh-huh. And which whenever I say that to my U.S. friends, I go, oh, wow. Uh, but it's, uh, Exactly. That it, was my, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the instant reaction. But as you know, everything balance, uh, budgets need to be balanced and funding gets cut again and again. Um, and until recently, I would say that we haven't had much of a strong philanthropic culture in Australia because the governments have supported the arts. And so the challenge at the moment is to try and build that culture of giving to the art that you value um, as those, those government budgets get reduced. Right. So yeah, that's sort of so that's... the the other side of the coin is that while we, you know, we're getting one thing, we don't have that that strong culture that it seems there seems to be in the U.S. From what I can see as an outsider. Hmm. Well, funding would would be nice, but. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's one Under... of those things that, as a composer, of course, you can endlessly complain about funding. But I, I mean, personally, I just feel very lucky that. I managed to be able to do what I do. And I think if there was zero funding, I would still be doing what I'm doing. You know, so much of what we do is about finding opportunities, about making opportunities for yourself. And so I think, you know, funding is a wonderful thing. And of course, we'd always love more of it. Um, but I think it's it's wasted time complaining about it. Yeah. And it seems like you, you are going out and making your op- own opportunities. Um, so we're... I think and I think stolen is is a great uh, example of that. Um, particularly, I if we're we're gonna only talk about uh, a few of the movements, but this is a pretty massive piece for a six person ensemble, which you went into a recording studio and then made pretty. It's it's a performance video, but it also ends up kind of being a little bit of a documentary about the piece. Yeah, it was a a monster project. It was a a dream project to work on. Um, But you're right, it is like a performance documentary that exists about the work. So, I mean, how is is this one of these projects that you just decided, I'm going to go do this and just made it happen? Well, I actually was not the person that really made it happen, aside from putting the dots on the page. Um, but the electric guitarist that you hear in the recording and see in the documentary, Solomon Silva, he's um, based in Connecticut. And he, um, we met at the Norfolk Festival 
2014 mm-hmm. and where a little version of this piece was premiered and he played the, um, the guitar part in that. So the original piece was about six minutes in length. And after the festival was over, he, you know, as we're leaving, he said, oh, I'll give you a call. Let's chat about, about a commission. And I was like, fantastic, great. And I was expecting the, can you write me a five-minute solo guitar piece, which, of course, I would have <laughs> loved to do. Um, but Sol being the amazing big thinker and big doer that he is, uh, phones a few weeks later and says, so I'm thinking about an album-length work where we get the whole band back together. And at this stage, I think we had some US musicians. I was here in Australia. Um, The violinist was in Canada and the conductor, um, he's with Winnipeg Symphony in Canada as well. So um, it was, you know, we'll get everyone back together next summer. We'll do a residency um, to, you know, to learn the work and then we'll head into the studio for three days. And I was like, wow, this sounds amazing. And then he says, oh, and let's get a film crew in to document the process of putting this all together and kind of the collaboration. Um, and so that's what we did. Bam. Wow. That's incredible. That's I know. I know. It's like as a composer, it's a dream phone call to get. I mean, it's really, and these, the musicians, I mean, they're absolutely top notch. I couldn't have worked with, you know, more highly skilled musicians, but also just a group of musicians who understood my intentions for the piece and just worked so hard to realize it to such a high level. Um, Solomon was also the producer on the recording, correct? Yeah. And how he, in, in the documentary, um, which if you're interested, you can go on Vimeo and search for Elm City Records, correct? Yeah. Yes. Okay, good. Got that. Got that right. I mean, you could probably just search for Stolen and Nicole Murphy and it'll pop, pop up right away. But, um, he talked about in the documentary, about kind of using post-production on like post-production techniques that you would normally work work with in a rock or a pop situation and using that on the uh, uh on the other purely acoustic instruments as, as well as the electric guitar how do you compare a live performance of this piece with the studio version are you applying the same amount of you know so-called post-production or or rather I guess it would be live electronics in a live performance or does it end up being uh pretty a pretty straightforward performance well it's the our rule in the studio was I mean I gave Sol complete freedom um because he I mean he had very distinct ideas about the sound world that should exist with the piece and you know, as a composer, sometimes that's really difficult because our jobs are all about having ultimate control as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously I'd spent months and months hearing these sounds in one particular way, but then I really respect him as an artist. And I think we had such a close collaboration with the the whole project that my philosophy with collaboration is always that I will say yes to anything unless I feel violently opposed to it. Um, and mm-hmm. so, because I think, you know, in a particularly a 45 minute piece, you could change a hundred notes and it won't change the intent of what I'm trying to communicate. Right. Um, yeah. and so if a performer says to me, oh, it would be great if this was down an octave because in this register of my instrument, it will speak more clearly or whatever it is. I mean, they're the expert in their instruments. So I'm always delighted when someone is trying to work out what I'm trying to say as a composer and then can show me a better way to realize it. 
Um, so in this instance with Sol, I wanted to give him as much freedom as I could, and maybe he sees it not so much because I'm sure we still had some pretty heavy discussions about guitar tones and post-production. Um, but the the idea was that what we are what you're hearing on the recording could be mostly replicated live. So we didn't want to take it too far away from what the musicians can do live, but we wanted to enhance it. So in um, there's a solo clarinet movement, and in that movement, the piano pedal is depressed so that you're hearing some sympathetic resonance of the strings. And so in the studio, that's really brought out more than you would hear in, in a live setting. Um, but it's like an exaggeration or an amplification of what the sort of acoustic intentions were. So I guess that right, was because... the guideline of where we wanted to go with that. Right, because the, I, that clarinet solo, there's also some, you know, there's some reverb applied to it, and it seems like there's delay as well. So, if you were, I mean, has this piece been, uh, has this piece been performed other other places live? Like, what did you do in those situations? Yeah, we've done. So we did do a, a sort of a showing before we went into the studio of it live um, where we were doing our residency and then wedged in between the ensemble movements, each member of the ensemble has a solo movement and those solo movements were designed to be taken out and played as standalone pieces as well as working within the structure of the larger work. Um, and so those have been performed a lot live um, and in that mm -hmm. case there's no electronic manipulation in any way. Okay, I got it. Um, so yeah, okay. it sort of has two lives, I guess. We're going to hear two different excerpts of the piece. And the first is the first two movements, movement one and two. And then later we'll hear movement seven. The first two movements kind of start start off with a bang and kind of stay at that higher energy for a while. And it seems like some of this material shows up later in the solo movements that you just mentioned as well. Is It's is each solo movement that occurs later in the piece kind of a, a dissection of some of the material we hear, we hear in these first two movements or maybe even the first three movements? Yeah, I mean, the whole piece shares very closely related material. So when the project first came about, um, the six-minute piece that had been uh, performed at the Norfolk Festival in 2014 Basically, when Sol wanted me to write this larger piece, he said, could that be an inner movement of this bigger piece? Um, and that piece was based on a poem by an Australian writer, Richard James Allen. And one of the things that I really loved about the form of the poem was that it had all of its energy in the beginning and then it kind of unfolded and that energy dissipates as you get towards the end of the poem. And so I thought about it in the couple of weeks after our phone call a lot and tried to imagine what music I would put either side of this sort of original piece if I used it as a central movement. But because of the link to the form, I really struggled. And I was at um, another festival in Maine and I was having a lesson with Elliot Schwartz and um, it was kind of an absurd lesson because he's, I mean, he sadly passed away at the end of last year, but he was at this stage staying in a nursing home for the summer um, so it was sort of an obscure setting as it was. And then in the middle of the, um, the middle of the lesson, 
there was a, an emergency fire evacuation and it was like the slowest. Oh boy. <laughs> it was just a drill we found out later, but it was kind of, I mean, it was absurd because it's the slowest evacuation you can imagine with everyone getting right. their walkers out. And so then we continued our lesson in the car park while, you know, other residents would come over and inquire where the bridge might still be on at 10 o'clock and so forth. So it was a really, <laughs> it was like, it's just one of my favorite memories, this beautiful lesson. But all of that aside, um, Elliot had been listening to this piano trio of mine just before the, the fire alarm went off and we got to the end of it and he said, oh, where's the rest of it? And I said, oh, no, 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 it's, it's just one movement, it's just seven minutes, it's, you know, self-contained. And he said, no, no, I think each section you could have pulled apart and I could have listened to 20 minutes of each section of that piece rather than the, you know, the one seven-minute piece. And right. as we were standing in the car park waiting for the fire engines to do their thing, um, I thought, well, there's the solution. I'm going to take this original piece from the 2014 festival and pull it apart and use sort of extend each section um, into this 45-minute piece. So it still retains the same form of the poem that was what had fascinated me to start with. Um, so the material that you're hearing stretched over that 45 minutes is the original piece stretched out and of course in that original piece it was only a six minute piece I think and so it has a lot of recurring material I mean you know you can't do too much in six minutes with introducing right yeah you know new material so yeah there are uh, there is a lot of a lot of ideas that are shared between those sections well and that and that speaks directly to the poem because I'm looking at the the poem right now and the very end of it has uh said Sitting on the edge of infinity, slowly going blind, I must discover myself with eyes closed from the four wild corners of the universe, something which is of value to others, that gleaming grain of golden sand, that piece of matter with the universe in it. That's what you're talking about, right? That that piece of matter with the entire universe in it that you can explode in and have have an entire world. Yeah, that's right. And I guess I should have mentioned that there is actually a little piano gesture that to me is that gleaming grain of golden sand um, and everything is kind of linked intervallically to that gesture. And that occurs in the third movement, correct? Yeah, you hear that right at the start of the third movement for the first time. You hear it in its golden grain form, I guess. Um, <laughs> and then things are pulled yeah, pulled out of manipulations from that, that little motive. So we'll go ahead and listen to the first two movements right now. And uh, who, who are the performers on this recording? Um, so we've got Solomon Silver as the guitarist. We've got Jeff Stern on percussion, Mickey Sawada on piano, David Perry on clarinet and bass clarinet, Alana Wanyuk is the violinist, uh, Samuel Suggs is double bassist, and Julian Pelicano is conducting. <laughs>
So can you talk about the guitarist that you wrote the piece for, Solomon? What was his background and how did that influence the piece? Um, so he has a background both in classical and in contemporary or popular music. Um, and when he played the, the original version at that 2014 festival, um, he just, he totally transformed the piece. I mean, it was this little six minute piece and in the center of the piece, there was an extended guitar solo, but it was by no means in my mind, a piece that was really guitar focused. And somehow he just managed to captivate the <clears throat> captivate me, I guess, and the I assume the audience as well with the way he delivered this solo in the middle of the piece. And the whole piece became about the electric guitar. And he has a really a really unique playing style that obviously comes from this fusion of his backgrounds. Um, and I can, I mean, it was not how I envisaged the piece sounding um, originally. Because in my mind, I was imagining amplified classical guitar, you know, as a sound. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Really that, I mean, that's very different. It's very, very different. And I mean, this is in the original piece. When I wrote the longer version, obviously, I was only thinking about his sound. So it's very specifically yeah. shaped to him. But what is interesting is I think last year, yeah, last year, um, the original piece was programmed at a festival and the guitarist who played it is terrific classical guitarist and played it very straight, you know, on electric, but very classically phrased. And mm -hmm. when I was listening to the performance, I was like, that's right. This is what I was imagining when I first wrote that piece. And it was amazing because I loved what Solomon did to it. And I so much so that I'd totally forgotten until I heard um, Trevor Babs, the other guitarist who played at this festival, do this very straight version. And I was like, and it was fantastic. It worked really well. And it was just amazing that it sort of took me back to, to what I had initially imagined. Um, so yeah, coming that's a pretty incredible experience when you get to kind of like, it's almost like seeing, well, it's, it's like having a child and then all of a sudden seeing them in a completely new way. Like this, this new light comes about them. They, they do something for the first time and you realize, wow, I, I, I don't, there, there's a part of you. It's like, I don't even know this person. I'm, I'm seeing them for the first time again. That's, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, it was a terrific experience. And what is actually kind of funny is that Trevor, the guitarist who was playing it at this festival last year was actually at the, uh, the 2014 festival. So he had heard um, the premiere of it with Soul playing it and um, and he really, yeah, stuck with his own style, which I really loved. So it's two very distinct interpretations of the piece and I think they both work equally well and they're equally distinctive. And as a composer, like, what a delight to have those two different kind of environments existing in the one piece. You succeeded in writing some some punk rock music for ensemble with electric guitar and not and and had it not sound lame. That's <laughs> not really easy to do. <laughs> well, thank you. I don't know if that's the intention that I had. Um, I mean, obviously, I always intend for my music not to sound lame. Um, yeah, of course. But I mean, there's when you when you add an electric guitar to acoustic instruments there's already this kind of sense of a well is this going to be pop music and classical music combined is it is it going to be classical music with a guitar sounding like it's trying to be a classical instrument you know it's just it's that particular instrument 
becomes really tricky because it has so many references and associations with it that are not in the classical world. And I thought you you created a, a space where they can all live pretty har- harmoniously, pretty seamlessly. Oh, well, that's a relief to hear. So thank you. <laughs> um, I, I know exactly what you're saying. And I guess, and I, you know, I think as well as all of the popular music references that the electric guitar has there's now a whole body of new music references that the guitar has right which is you know something else to deal with in that setting but with this I was really really conscious of just writing my music with whatever vehicle I had available in the same way that if I was commissioned to write a tuba quartet for example I would be writing the piece that I was going to write anyway but for tubers you know you're always trying to express yeah, yeah. what you want to express just through whatever vehicle you happen to be provided with you know as the next commission and so I guess that helped take away some of the um yeah the danger of moving into the lame side of things right I mean particularly the sounds of the guitar bring bring references with it because a lot of this piece has you know some uh overdrive or some distortion on the guitar but there was there was one part in particular and I think it might have been in the 7th movement that we're going to listen to it really took me back to like 1995 and you know the gu- guitar sounds that I was hearing in indie rock and grunge you know and did you have kind of points of reference in mind when thinking about the the sounds of the guitar? Because I mean, unlike the the because you can so easily you know just plug in a new pedal and drastically change the instrument, as opposed to the the acoustic instruments that that you're that make up the rest of the ensemble, they become abstract and capable of not really being invisible but uh, but kind of being chameleons to express your ideas but as soon as you put you know uh, this particular effects box or this particular sound on the guitar it immediately brings up associations in in the mind of the listener so i mean it, it's almost kind of like the sense of smell you know into that you know you you hear that it's the most intense in terms of bringing up memories and i had i had kind of a similar sensation with the guitar sounds you know taking me back to that particular point in in history where i mean it's not necessarily the first time i i heard it but it was like that was the memory that's where i went to so did you i mean how did you come up with some of the effects that you used was that a collaboration with solomon or did you have these kind of references in mind when you were writing yeah, it was definitely Solomon's influence. I had his, I mean, I knew his general sound world preferences, I guess, when I was writing the piece. And I had his, I had him as a performer in mind, front and center the whole time I wrote, wrote the work. Um, right. And, you know, so there were gestures that I've heard him play that I just, you know, that to me says it's him and so I I just wanted the piece to be really stamped on what or who he is as a performer um and then in terms of the different timbres for the guitar initially I started writing ideas in or descriptions like just very vague descriptions of the sound in the score and we had a few discussions about oh what would you mean by this is it this is what you mean is it this and you know something that I think you know would I'd describe one way he would describe it completely differently and it was just it wasn't a great way to um to work and because we had this residency where we could 
collaborate um, really closely. I just, in the end, took all references to the tone out of the score and sort of went, let's, let's do it when we're there. And so in the rehearsal period, we tried a whole lot of options. And like I said earlier, I would only say no when I was you know, violently <laughs> opposed to it. And what's funny that you bring up Movement 7 is um, that is one that I initially did feel quite uncomfortable about. Um, but I really? also... Okay. Yeah, I mean, just because it was very far away from what I'd imagined it. Um, to me, it was mm-hmm. this very delicate, um, gentle kind of movement uh, with quite a pure tone. That's what I was imagining when I was writing. Um, but then I also love, like, I love collaboration and I love the meeting of minds. And I think, you know, often when you when you open up in those collaborations, go, all right, let's give it a go. Let's try it. Sometimes that then informs your ideas about your own music in a different way and it opens up new possibilities in other works. And so I try and be really open. And in the end, I said, you know what, let's let's go go with it. And other people have mentioned, um, you know, popular music references that jump out to them from around that, you know, that mid-90s sort of time period. Mm-hmm. Um, and And I think... I think that's great. Like, I think it exists as a collaborative piece. And so I love that there is a bit of what I've written and then there's that sound world of Solomon's imagining that's come into it. Um, and, yeah, I, I really enjoy that fact. But it is one of the movements where I was like, oh, it's not quite what I was initially thinking. <laughs> um, yeah, but that, I mean, that's the exciting part of that collaboration is just hearing things in a completely different way to what you imagined. And I think as composers, it's good not to have all the control all the time. Yeah. Did you have, I mean, did you have any kind of rock or pop influences coming into this project or was that like the furthest thing from your mind? Furthest thing from my mind. I just want, okay. I mean, yeah, I just wanted to write music. That's, I mean, that's kind of the premise I start each piece with. Like I'm just compelled to write music and right. and express whatever I happen to be kind of fascinated with at that moment in time. And so whatever vehicle is there, it just gets channeled through. Got it. So we're going to listen now to the seventh movement, which starts off with a violin solo, right? Yeah. So it's one of those solos that's yeah. interwoven.
So uh, we'll end with the question that I ask all the composers and artists who are on the podcast is that how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Oh, it's a, it's a big question. Um, that's, yeah, that's why we end with it. <laughs> that's how we end with it. Um, I mean, I, and now I can't imagine doing anything else, but at one stage I did imagine doing something more sensible. Um, but I guess, I mean, I always, I was never a great musician growing up. I was fine, but I was never brilliant. Um, and I do like to tell all of my students that, you know, I was never the person that practiced consistently for, you know, 10 or 12 years. I played a lot and I, I did a lot of playing. Maybe I didn't do as much practicing as I should, um, which is great training as a composer, you know, a lot of experimentation, uh, yeah. improvisation. Um, but I was, you know, and I was, I was always getting good marks at music, but I was never like the top one or two in my class. Um, and so I just, I mean, when I started learning the piano, I started writing music. I didn't realize there was a distinction between performer, composer at that stage. I just thought if you played music, you would write music. Uh, and I just continued doing that, I guess, from, from when I'd started that at quite a young age. And when I was about maybe 14 or 15, um, the choir that I was singing in had a composer come and workshop one of her pieces with us. Um, and it was the first time that I had sort of realized that being a composer was a job that living people did. Um, and then I sort of, that was sort of, I guess when I decided that it might be a nice thing to do. And I had a terrific teacher in the last few years of high school who um, was new to the school and must have just seen, um, that I was interested in it and really encouraged me a huge amount. At the time, I didn't have a huge amount of confidence. Uh, and I think as well, like the top performers in a school setting are the ones that get celebrated musically and the composers are kind of behind the scenes, which is your preferred, um, you know, preferred place. I, that, that's why I've chosen a job where I get to sit at a desk alone for many hours a day. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, sometimes it's difficult in those environments to get the right guidance you know, a lot of people don't know the pathways for composers. And she was just a terrific teacher in being able to recognize that potential and encourage me to audition and, and give it a shot. Um, and so that was, that was it. Once I, once I'd started my studies, then there was no turning back. I loved it. And yeah. Why would, why would you do anything else? It's a great job to have. Was your, was your teacher, was she a composer as well? No, no, she wasn't at all. She was a okay. brilliant teacher um, and a jazz vocalist and pianist, but just incredible teacher, um, really, really wonderful educator. Something that, I mean, go, going back to that moment where you, where you had that uh, guest composer come in to your, um, to your choir to workshop her piece. I mean, is that kind of the moment when you realized I could do this? I mean, yeah, I didn't, I don't know if I connected it with myself personally that I could do it, but I just went, oh, it's an option. Like I didn't, I don't think right. I even realized it was a job that you could have because I had, I mean, I'd grown up playing sort of under the, the AME B system, which is like the Australian Music Examinations Board, which every you know piano player, every instrumentalist does this kind of examining system. And basically you have works from each period. And I remember only sort of halfway through or in the upper grades was when you started to have works that were maybe 20th century or kind of, mm -hmm. yeah. And um, 
And so music was never kind of coming from my time and place, the music that I was playing. And so I guess her workshop really sort of flicked a switch and made me went, oh, there is music that is written by people who live in my community, who are alive at the same time as me, who are expressing ideas that obviously I have things in common with just by that simple notion that they're from my time and place. Um, and again, I don't well, know. And the, I, and the other thing you probably, and the other thing you probably got from that, ex, that experience, having gone through classical music up to that time, just get, just like barely scratching the surface surface of the 20th century is that, for was that your first encounter with a uh, composer who was a woman? Yes, absolutely. And I actually had the yeah. pleasure of inviting the same composer um, to work with some of my students last year. And I was looking around the room and it was a really beautiful moment because those students uh, were around that same age. They're a little bit older, um, but sort of around that same age as me. And I was watching them listening to her speak about her music. And I looked around and we'd had a whole two-day festival of um, different composers and improvisers come in and there were some other guests from earlier sessions and from the next session standing in the room and I looked around the room and there were five female like professional female composers standing in the room mm. and I thought wow this is so different for this generation than what it was for me yeah and I think that's, that's an amazing thing yeah absolutely well awesome thanks Nicole for doing this before we go can you tell everyone where they can find you online yeah um NicoleMurphy.com.au is is the place, uh, and then SoundCloud and YouTube as well. And you're on Twitter, correct? Oh yeah, and I am on Twitter. Yeah, what's your handle on Twitter? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think it is Nicole J Murphy. Okay. I, think. <laughs> I mean, Eddie Murphy's <laughs> wife is also Nicole Murphy, so you well, could just, get her. Well, just try it out. I think there's a J in the middle. Yeah, it is. I've just loaded it now. It is. It's Nicole J. Murphy. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, my pleasure. And thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.